welcome to Season 1, Episode 4 of Pediatric Consult. I'm Dr. Jill Schaffeld, and I'm excited to be sitting with Dr. Bob Frank today from the Division of Infectious Disease at Cincinnati Children's. He's the Director of Vaccine Research Center and the Executive Chair of the Institutional Review Board. Um, and we will be talking about um, a slew of different vaccine topics that I'm very excited to have someone so knowledgeable with me today. So welcome, Dr. Frank, if you don't mind telling us a little bit just about yourself and maybe how long you've been at Cincinnati Children's. Sure. Well, thanks for having me today. And that uh, um, I actually just passed my 16 years here. It's uh, hard to believe time's gone so quickly. Wow. Is that uh, after I retired from the Navy, I came here in 2006 and have been here since. So it's, uh, it's been a great 16 years. Wonderful. Do you have any special interests besides vaccines that you'd like to share with us? Um, yeah, so I'm, uh, I do doctoring to pay the bills, um, but that uh, I also enjoy photography and uh, playing tennis. Wonderful. Well, welcome. So we'll kind of just jump right into the nitty gritty of vaccines and what we're talking about today. But something that I've heard as a general pediatrician that's been on the minds of many um, of my colleagues is the um, rolling out of the new Prevnar 15 vaccine. Um, just very interesting. You know, we for years have been using Prevnar 13 and have been very successful in vaccinating children. Um, but just recently, um, the new Prevnar 15 vaccine has been produced. And in preparing to come here today and talk a bit about this, you know, I did do a little um, kind of reading up on what's out there, what info is out there. Uh, and one thing I, I noted that was um, that I have to be very careful as I say this because it was absolutely a press release by the vaccine manufacturer was just, you know, stating that the two additional strains that are included in the Prevnar 15, specifically 22F and 33F, um, as well as serotype 3, which is in the original Prevnar um, 3, are responsible for about 25% of invasive disease. So, you know, just in reading that, wow, that's, that sounds like, you know, that's a, a huge plus. But again, that's the press release from the vaccine manufacturer, which I think we all have to be a bit cautious and a bit careful when we, you know, read information such as this. So I think that one of the things that's been amazing over the lifetime of me as being a pediatrician is that when I started being a pediatrician, we didn't have vaccines against Hib or pneumococcus uh, other than for the uh, older people for the pneumococcus. So um, the amount of invasive disease we used to see from Haemophilus and Pneumococcus was massive. Um, every year we would have this. And it's now to where it's so infrequent, we really need to go find residents and fellows to show them cases, which is a good problem. Um, but the reason we're having those so fewer cases is because of the vaccines and they've been so effective. If you look at the um, evolution of the pneumococcal vaccine, so the first one we had is a Prevnar 7. And that um, decreased the invasive disease by about 90%. Uh, and then uh, they improved it to Prevnar 13. And that's because there were some of the serotypes that were prevalent outside the United States that really weren't in Prevnar 7. And then also there were some that uh, specifically like 19A that was having the antibiotic resistance. So they added these in for Prevnar 13. That then took the covering for the invasive disease from about 90% to 95%. So we're really getting very small incremental improvements as we add in any other serotypes. So that I would say is that there are some unmet needs um, as far as a few percent. But when you would say that 25% of invasive disease, what that would mean is that it would be 
25% of the 5% of invasive diseases still happen. So in that respect, then you're talking about a 1% difference. Um, and so it's not zero. And, and, and I also think it's always important to have um, options for vaccines because if something happens to one company, we don't, we don't have a vaccine. And we've seen that happen with uh, vaccines before as far as a, a manufacturing problem, whatever, and the vaccine goes offline. So having another company is good. Um, also, competition is good. That helps us as pediatricians to be able to get a more favorable price. Um, so that uh, there's a, I think there's a lot of good reasons to have another product on the market. Sure. Very good point that I hadn't even thought about. You know, you're thinking the scientific aspect of that, but just the consumer and the supply and the demand and thinking of, thinking of it in that, um, I think, way is very beneficial as well. Um, it makes sense. You know, you had me kind of as a general pediatrician when you said, you know, things go off the market. I'm like, oh, formula shortage, you know. But and what if something happens to, you know, where they're manufactured at? And so that makes perfect sense. We've seen it for flu. We've seen it for pertussis before. It's happened. I mean, it's not just a theoretical thing. It happened. Sure. And so having uh, another source is, is always important. Yeah, wonderful. Um, one thing I was also just kind of looking at as, giving this in the office is that it does appear to be that if you started a series with Prevnar 13, that Prevnar 15 will kind of just jump right in and it will almost work interchangeably so that if you had... So I don't think it's Prevnar 15, though. It would be the uh, Merck vaccine. It would be the, the 15-valent Merck vaccine. And thank and you the, for correcting the, me because you're right. I did not make that, that um, clear. So thank you. I appreciate it. So you think benefits, you know, supply and demand. Yes, there is a small improvement, not a huge percentage for maybe what we see as general pediatricians. Um, but, you know, it, your bread and butter and what you do, like you said, good to just have, you know, different vaccines that we're developing. So having, I do think having the additional vaccines important. Um, answering the question, I'm sorry, I got you off the topic, but that um, they are interchangeable. Um, one of the things where it's not interchangeable is for the meningococcal B vaccine, um, and that can be a problem, so that you need to start and finish with the same product there. Now, a good thing is, is that there is a pentavalent meningococcal vaccine that's uh, finishing clinical trials, and hopefully it'll be available uh, within the next year or two, and that'll be good because then you don't have to worry about the meningib. It's going to be in with the other four valences, but that there's other four serotypes. Um, but right now, is that if you were to use uh, or switch over to another type of the uh, pneumococcal vaccine, you would not need to switch over or complete the series with the other vaccine. You could just switch to the new vaccine. Great. I think that's a, a big benefit. Besides just the incremental improvements in coverage, any other downsides you see? Well, I don't think there's any downside to the new vaccine. It's just that um, the, the one thing is the theoretical and that we haven't seen it yet is that um, the more of the conjugated um, vaccine serotypes you put into a vaccine, there's the potential to where that you're getting a decrease in the antibody response to the vaccine. And that's why with the new serotypes, and so that's why whenever we're doing clinical trials is that we're looking at what the seroresponse is to the vaccine. Um, because you, we have seen slight, not statistically significant difference, but slight decreases in the absolute amount of immune response as you're adding in um, more serotypes. So that's a a theoretical problem. We haven't seen it yet, but that's one of the things that we look for in each clinical trial we do with uh, the pneumococcal vaccines. Great. And I know what I had read and had kind of um, thought in terms of 
other, you know, downsides and reactions was that really very just similar side effects that we would see from any of our general childhood vaccines, including, you know, Prevnar 13. That we would, would so, get, it's, so it's it's really, it's a conjugate vaccine. It's the same process that was used with, by Pfizer or by GSK with their previous uh, pneumococcal vaccine. Um, so it's a conjugated uh, vaccine where you're taking the protein uh, and conjugating it to your serotype of the pneumococcus. Um, so yeah, the uh, your adverse events are going to be the same thing. It was basically local, which is going to be pain at the shot. Localized injection reactions and Ex- soreness, yeah, irritability, exactly. and the little But there's nothing itself. special um, yeah. or different Great. with this uh, new vaccine, no. Wonderful. So I appreciate that. That was a nice, good, very pertinent update for what I know a lot of my colleagues are talking about within their practices. Uh, we're going to switch gears a little bit, and you're you're just you know probably could talk about this in your sleep at this point two years out, but um, just with any COVID vaccine updates. So I have been seeing a lot of questions within my practice from parents about you know their children have just had COVID. Do they need to wait to get their booster? Is there, one, is there a potentially a COVID flu combo vaccine coming out? But also, is there a new Omicron-specific COVID um, vaccine that potentially would be coming out as well? And what your thoughts are on that and timing? So these are all great questions and that uh, try to keep it short. One thing you find out is you never ask an ID question and open-ended question because that uh, ID doctor and open-ended question because they'll keep talking forever. Um, but the um, as far as for the combined flu and uh, COVID vaccine, I think that's a goal, but it's not something we're going to see this year. Um, there's nothing that's in clinical trials that I know of, so there's no way it's going to be available this year, maybe something next year. Um, as far as for the vaccines that are being looked at right now, um, both uh, Moderna and Pfizer, so they both have the uh, authorization down to six months of age. Both of the companies are looking at bivalent COVID vaccines, so they would have the original vaccine in there plus um, uh, the Omicron variant, or Pfizer is using the B45, um, the um, Moderna is using the uh, B1, which is the Omicron. So those trials, uh, we're actually going to be starting those in the next uh, few weeks, and that uh, hopefully we'll have the data out pretty quickly. I think what's going to end up happening with uh, COVID vaccines, it's going to be soon, if, is if what the FDA does for flu vaccines. So each year, when there's a change in serotype or where they don't make us go through and do a whole nother set of clinical trials, because it said it's relatively equivalent. I think that's where we're going to end up being with COVID too, is that as there's a a necessary tweak um, that they will say, okay, just show us that you're getting um, the same process and then they'll let you uh, use it without another set of clinical trials. That would be super, super helpful in kind of streamlining things. Exactly. Well, I mean, you know, what you want to do with it, you want to, you want to make sure that your vaccine's safe. Obviously, that's the first thing you always want to do is make sure it's safe. But once you've had a lot of experience with it and you're showing it's the same process and you're just making incremental changes, um, that's where the FDA has a long history of saying you don't need to go back and, and do the whole clinical trial again. That makes sense. And that was great information to know that even though there's talks about those, that those trials have not started yet. They have not. So I think that that's really good information as well, because we're still probably a good... I would say it's 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 going to be at the earliest... Six months out? Yes. It's, yes. So that's, I think, great information for parents, because right now we're giving boosters about every five months, right? Correct. So, you know, you could potentially give your child a booster now, yeah. and they would still be potentially in, in perfect need. time if, yeah. for you know, the new. 
I, you know, bivalent. I think what's going to, I think unfortunately what's going to happen is that COVID is going to become like flu, um, is that we're going to be needing a COVID vaccine every year, at least for a while. Um, you know, one of the things that I've heard uh, parents discuss a lot as far as that, why do I bother getting a vaccine? You know, my, I got I got vaccinated or I, and I got boosted and my kids got vaccinated, boost, boosted, and they still got COVID. And, you know, part of that then is to look at the difference between infection and disease too. And so infection meaning is that, yes, you do a PCR and they're positive for COVID, um, but they're not that sick. And so this is what we're seeing a lot of as far as the people that have been vaccinated and boosted is that while they may be getting infected, the likelihood of hospitalization or death is between five and 10 times lower as compared to um, vac unvaccinated people. So if you're unvaccinated, you have about a five to 10 times higher rate of hospitalization or death compared to um, vaccinated. Um, there was a recent study where if, of 98% of the adolescents that ended up in the ICU or needing mechanical ventilation were unvaccinated. Only 2% were vaccinated. So that it overwhelmingly decreases the amount of severe disease. Um, and that, you know, if you think about it, is that our goal really is that I would love to have a vaccine that would prevent the common cold. And that in the old days, before 2019, you know, in the ancient history, um, in the old days, is that um, coronavirus was a cold. And that, and if I draw blood on most every adult, I'd find antibodies to probably four or five different coronaviruses. Um, and, you know, you ask most parents, um, most doctors included, about their kids, is that if they woke up and they had a runny nose, a little bit of a cough, what would you do? Well, the answer is usually, would they have a fever? No. Well, they're going to school. Mm -hmm. um, and so... Part of it, too, is that the COVID has been such a shift in our psychology, a shift in our behavior, uh, a, just a cataclysmic event um, that we're still trying to deal with it. And it. But I think it is getting more toward, unfortunately, this is just an endemic virus now that we're going to have to just learn how to live with. Sure. But the way we can live with best is making sure we get everybody vaccinated. And, you know, it's like one of the things that's People have asked me what's the most amazing thing or great thing I've seen over the last two years is that having these vaccines that have been available so quickly, that we haven't cut any corners, we haven't cut any safety issues, um, and we've done all the same things we did on any other trial. We were just able to do it quickly because we were provided the funds by the government. They allowed us to be able to continue right through. We didn't have to worry about funding. Um, and then on the opposite side, people said, what's the biggest frustration and it's that we have life-saving vaccines that aren't being utilized maximally. Absolutely. That kind of edges into where I was thinking to go next, which was just sharing some very basic um, information about even regional data, if you have it, for age groups. Specifically, we're about two months out on the approval for six months and up. Um, I know... I'm seeing a little bit of interest within our practice. We're definitely vaccinating kids um, and infants. And, you know, I do have parents ask me, but, you know, there's not quite the excitement as there was initially. Well, part of it is that, so, like I, I mentioned, I was in the, in the Navy before I came here, and that I was actually stationed in Egypt during 9-11, and that I was actually flying from Egypt to um, Sweden on 9-11, and wow. it uh, landed in Sweden, and they asked me, had I been watching the TV? I said, well, how could I watch the TV? I was on an airplane. Um, but 
with that is that at the terrorist attack thing, that you can only stay, your mind only allows you to stay at heightened alert for so long. So part of the things with COVID is that our mind is not allowing us to stay at a high alert level all the time. And unfortunately, what we've seen is every time we let the guard down, the cases start to come back up again. The best way we can try to minimize that increase is vaccination and getting as many people vaccinated as possible. Masks work, but the, the problem with masks, they have to be on all the time. And that uh, um, so if you go to work and you have it on at work eight hours a day, but 16 hours a day and on weekends you're not having it on, it's, it's not doing that much good. Um, if you, the vaccines, we've done a very good job of getting people vaccinated uh, about 60 uh, years of age and above, where we're in the 90% or more that have been fully vaccinated, and, and close to 80 or so percent had uh, at least one booster. But the problem is now is that as we decrease in the age group, about every decade that we're decreasing in age, we're having about a 7 to 9% decrease in the likelihood of immunization that um, for adolescents, so uh, between 12 and 18, uh, last I checked a few weeks ago, we were at about 60 some odd percent um, that had at least one dose, uh, not fully immunized, but at least one dose. We were down for the five to 11 year olds, we were at 25 to 30%. Oh, wow. And under five, it was in like 10 to 15%. Um, and that's across, uh, uh, racial profiles and that it's it's across the board as far as that as we're decreasing in age we're decreasing in vaccine rate part of the things is that people are not thinking that the I think is that the disease is that severe in kids and if you look at it compared to what's the likelihood of severe disease in a child versus an adult it's lower in a child clearly however it's not zero and that we've had over the last I looked a couple weeks ago and so unfortunately I'm sure it's higher now over 1,000 children in the United States that have died from COVID. To put that in context, during a bad year for flu, we have about 110 to 120 children die. So we've wow. had eight to 10 times higher number of children that have died already. We're in the 20 to 30 to 40,000 number of hospitalizations. Um, it's not a benign infection and, that, uh, and the vaccines can really help. The other thing too is that if you've been, vac if you've been infected, there have been small studies look at this. If you've been infected and then you, some people choose to be vaccinated, some people choose to not be vaccinated, and then you follow them along, the people that have been unvaccinated and stay unvaccinated are two to three times more likely to get infected again compared to the people that have been vaccinated after having COVID. So while with many diseases, the natural infection will provide you good immunity, COVID is not one of them. Um, and so the vaccine is still important even if you've been infected. The other thing is that people are worried, well, can I give them a vaccine after getting infected? Yes, it's not going to hurt you. I do hear that a lot. It's and not going to hurt you. Not only, you know, should I do it or, oh, you know, I, I chuckle a little bit. I get the 90-day thing still. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, that was when we didn't have access to and, a, a good supply of vaccines. And, it does not matter. Two weeks, you know, two weeks from initial is what I say. And honestly, even if it's a little sooner, I'm not... Right. You know, holding I mean, people to that. Two and, weeks. and so, you know, if you look at it, one of the things, too, is that people ask, you know, how did we get the three weeks between doses for Pfizer or four weeks between doses for Moderna? Um, in that that was thought to be the shortest period that we could give between vaccines to allow our immune system to recover to be ready for another vaccine. 
it doesn't necessarily mean it was the best regimen, but it was the fastest regimen that we could use to be able to try to get a pandemic under control. We didn't have the luxury to be able to say, okay, let's try six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks between six doses. Months, six months, many of you know, our vaccines. Right, I mean, you know, like with, with HPV, we now know is that if a, a person gets a dose at zero and six months, that works just as well as zero, two, and six months. But that's because we've had time to be able to do that. To study this, yeah. With COVID, we had to make our best guess, and that's why the three weeks. There's been some data to show is that if you do have longer periods between the first and second dose, you actually have a higher immune response. Now, the downside of that, though, is it means you have a longer period that you're not fully protected. Only partially protected exactly. in that time. So. so everything has a downside. Definitely. Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting when you do think about, you know, vaccines and how we come up with, with some of these things. And it's, it's, like you said, you have to think it is, we're doing our best with what we have, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then... We have to study those for a long period of time before we know maybe what's best and how to tweak that in the best way. But I think one of the things that um, I've heard along those lines, though, too, is where people said they've been, parents have been reluctant to vaccinate their children. They said the vaccine hasn't been around long enough. We don't know enough about the vaccines. What are the long-term side effects? And I had to think about that. I mean, why is that a thing that people are bringing up? And obviously, it's a concern, but why is that raising a concern? And then I thought about it. I said, okay, so if you have high blood pressure, you're taking a medicine every day. If you have high cholesterol, you're taking a medicine every day. If diabetes, you're taking medicine every day. So there is the possibility that over months to years that you will have an accumulation of medicine or you're having something that um, then does trigger a side effect that's months or years down the line. That doesn't happen with vaccines. A vaccine is there, is there for a few days and it's gone. So our immune system sees it, makes an antibody to it, and then the antibody stays but the, the antigen, the, the thing that's been the offending agent, is gone. Um, you know, if you look at the mRNA vaccines, that those, uh, we had to actually put the fat layer around that, that lipid nanoparticle around it, because um, when we injected just pure, DNA, uh, pure RNA, our body chewed it up before it ever got into our cells, because our body doesn't want mRNA floating around. It's supposed to do its job to make a new cell and then be uh, destroyed. So the... There isn't a good correlation to say because of medicines, months down the line or years down the line, you're going to get a, an adverse event you haven't seen. It's not the same with vaccines. The other thing with vaccines with COVID, we've now had literally hundreds of millions of doses of COVID vaccine being given. And the only adverse events that we've seen that we didn't see in the clinical trial was the myocarditis, pericarditis, and then with the um, Johnson & Johnson vaccine is with the uh, um, thrombocyte, thrombocytopenia. Uh, the thrombocytopenia in the women is about one in a million, so incredibly low. And the myocarditis um, is somewhere in the range of a few per hundred thousand. And can you speak to what the incidence for myocarditis when you develop natural disease from COVID? It's about be? seven to 10 times higher um, from natural disease than it is from the vaccine. The other thing too, is if you look at the severity, so kind of going back to what I was talking about infection versus disease, if you look at the severity of the myocarditis, pericarditis from vaccine versus uh, natural infection is much less severe uh, that many of the people, they were picked up just because they had some kind of atypical chest pain and that uh, you give them uh, ibuprofen and that's been sufficient. They, if, 
some early on we were hospitalizing the kids because we were just not sure exactly what was going on but they were in for like 24 hours in home and so that it really has not been it's scary it sounds terrible i mean you're getting myocarditis pericarditis but um it has really not been a uh severe kind of um, side effect that's great i love that you shared you know as you think about the vaccine and it's given and you know it it leaves and it leaves the system i know one of the things that i've shared with a lot of parents is the my understanding and please correct me if i'm wrong is that if we look kind of in the history of modern vaccines the the majority of side effects have been found within the first 8 weeks after they've been given any serious side effects or complications and i believe that you know we can now say, wow, we're, what, close to two years out, even with children uh, giving these vaccines, um, at least with trials as well. And, you know, I think that is a huge just, okay, we've never found, and you think about the number of vaccines we have, anything significant beyond that time frame. You're, everything you said is exactly correct, is that uh, um, the reason that the FDA chose um, two months of safety data uh, to be mandated before they would have given EUA is just what you said. As far as if you're going to see an adverse event, it basically happens within even six weeks, and that uh, and you just don't see long term. Um, and so that's why the FDA made that decision as far as give us two months of safety data for at least 50% of the participants in the clinical trial. That will allow us to be able to see as if there's a sufficient safety profile. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's been, it, it's been an incredibly um, safe vaccine and incredibly effective vaccine. So I know for myself, when I'm counseling parents, uh, especially with COVID, but with just vaccines in general, I love to use that piece of data just with the eight weeks, you know. So, um, you know, now it's COVID vaccine. For a while, it was the HPV vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's the newest one, <laughs> um, which now I think I, we can say 14, 15 years, you know, billions of doses. But I love also the point you made with the, you know, we had given, we have given so many COVID vaccines in such a short period of time that we have such good real world data and probably better data than we've had on any other vaccine. Not probably. (laughs) Definitely. Because we've, we've got such high numbers so quickly. Yes. Um, So to me, and maybe, maybe that scares people, but to me, that just gives us much more, you know, real time, real world data, and much more, you know, confidence in the safety of these vaccines. Absolutely. No, I, I totally agree with you. Great. Are there any other, and it doesn't necessarily have to be COVID vaccines, but any other, if you have a vaccine hesitant parent, um, and, and I do find that it sometimes it's, this is such a broad question, like you said, don't ask an infectious disease specialist an open-ended question. Um, you know, I think the autism debate has been beaten to death. So I don't know that that's a um, good one to start with, but just any other real pertinent facts for a general pediatrician sitting in the office with a parent who's hesitant? Um, You know, I think, again, it sometimes is depending on what their concern is. Mm. Um, The one I hear all the time, the autism, but also like the fetal cells is a common one to hear. But any just info to share advice to give us so just as a full disclosure is that uh when i was in the navy i did general pediatrics for 50 percent or more of the time so that uh i do understand as far as what it is to be a, a general pediatrician and the 
time constraints and uh, the number of people that are sitting in the waiting room to, um, to see you uh, so that <clears throat> your time is not unlimited. But one of the things that I've um, found that has been helpful is try not to assume why somebody's vaccine has it and ask them why. Um, can you share with me what makes you nervous? Because one of the things is that um, there's actually two main camps and they're diametrically opposed on everything except for vaccine hesitancy. There's the one group that says, this is my body, this is my right, don't tell me what to do, that's on, on this side of the spectrum. Hmm. And there's this one over here that says, the vaccines aren't safe, the vaccines aren't well tested, the vaccines contain toxins that, that are on the totally opposite spectrum. And for every other political, philosophical issue, they don't agree. <laughs> but on this one that they say, I'm wanting to avoid vaccines. So if you don't find out why or get them to give you some sort of an inkling of why, you have a significant chance of going down the wrong road. The other thing is that um, don't give up. Um, and so that you may not win today and you're not going to win on everyone. You're just not. But, um, you know, when we were walking around and I was walking with, uh, working with some colleagues in psychology, Dr. Monica Mitchell and Dr. Lori Crosby, is that we were walking around and talking to people. And one of the things that Monica said is that this is your day. This is the time for you to make a decision that is right for you. And so allowing people to come to it's their time, it's their decision, they're ready, will be helpful too. So do I think vaccines are critical? Absolutely. Do I think everybody should be vaccinated? Absolutely. I mean, obviously, if there's a medical condition they can't, then we shouldn't vaccinate them. But we need to give people the permission to ask questions and have time and, that, um, and to allow them to come to the decision that that's the right thing for them. It's interesting you brought that up. You made me think about over the course of you know, my years of practice, the families that I've seen smattered here or there that have um, refused vaccines um, I do at every visit still walk in and say they are due for this, this, and this. And we discuss this would be for preventing this disease. This is the importance of this vaccine. And interestingly, as much as one might think that that would start, you know, start off on a bad foot or start a debate, typically they've always said, thank you. I appreciate that you tell me what my child, even if you know for years we haven't vaccinated, you still let us know mm -hmm. this is the importance, this is what they would be getting today, even if, you know, you think that, so I think, like you said, just, I mean, there's some data, it's making me think about, you know, smoking cessation, and I think the data shows that at every visit, if you continue to ask that person, that they become more likely and more likely to quit, so, um, you know, that I, might not translate perfectly to no, vaccines. I think it's. I think it's a good. I think it's a good. Idea, I, think. I think it's a great analogy, and that you know, people are not all at the same place at the same time, and that there was uh, a cart. There was a lecture I was at a number of years ago, is where a person was talking about physicians trying to communicate with patients, and they had a as a cartoon this huge needle on a syringe. And saying what we as physicians want to do is to inject information into people. And he wasn't talking about vaccines, but basically just in general, is that instead of 
allowing people to take bite-sized information at, at the, when they're ready is that we're going to inject them with the information. We're going to tell them this is what you need. This is and then, and they're supposed to say okay. Um, and it doesn't work like that all the time. And that doing the approach that you said is respecting the people, respecting their opinion, um, and respecting that mm, I don't agree with that, but uh, okay, we can agree on these other things. And that. Um, and sometimes that changes people's minds because they see that you do respect their opinion. Yeah, I think that's a, a great way to think about it. Uh, I did want to mention that Cincinnati Children's on their website has a wonderful vaccine toolkit. Um, answers a lot of questions. It's great for parents, but there's actually a provider section as well. So that is on their main website. You can literally search Cincinnati Children's Vaccine Toolkit. Um, it's at the cchmc.org site. Um, and also just in talking about you mentioned the time constraints in the office. You sit in the office and you know, you every bone in your body wants to have this conversation and be able to talk uh, as long as you can to this patient, but you know you have a schedule and you have other patients waiting. Um, so I did want to mention that within the last few months, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services have come up with some new CMS codes, um, which are pretty easily accessible. It's um, G0310 and G0311. They are both codes which can be used for counseling um, patients as well as parents, um, but when the end result is a vaccine is not actually given in that visit. So you do get a little bit of credit for the time that you're taking and spending with that family, um, which you know I think is a nice thing for general pediatricians to know that my time does matter, it does count, and that I'm doing something beneficial for the family here. Time is, uh, and does count, and um, your input and talking with people is important, and that one of the things that's been shown over and over again is that sometimes it doesn't feel like it to us as physicians, but parents still say the number one source they believe is their physician. That's, they're coming to you because they trust you. They're trusting you with the lives of their children. Um, so obviously they have trust in you. They may not agree with you on everything that you're doing, and we have to accept that, but they trust you. Um, and so with that kind of incremental um, discussion that you're saying, I, I think that that does help. And, and it's nice that, um, that the insurers are seeing that is important um, because, you know, vaccines actually save money for insurers. Um, if you can get people vaccinated, then they don't get the diseases. They're not hospitalized. They don't die. You know, one of the, I was talking to some residents recently is that in 1900, so 120 years ago, one out of five children in the United States, one out of five children died before five years of age. One out of five. And most of the reason 20%. that they were dying was because of vaccine-preventable illnesses. And so these diseases that we used to see, even when I was growing up, not infrequently, we don't see anymore. And that's a good problem, too. But, and that's part of the thing, though, is that parents don't understand. Because they say, well, we don't see this. We don't see that. You're right. But the reason you don't see that is because of the vaccines. And if you don't continue to vaccinate, you're going to see it back again. The most recent example we've seen now is that, although it's small scale as far as up in New York, is that they've had some, looks like maybe some polio cases. Um, so the diseases are there. They're ready to strike. And the vaccines are what keep them away. Absolutely. Very important. 
Well, I have very much enjoyed uh, the discussion today. Um, it's if there is anything else that you can think of that you wanted to share, but I think this is a great update for general pediatricians just in talking um, about a new vaccine with the Prevnar 15 as well as a COVID update. And very much appreciate your wealth of knowledge, your time you spent with us today. Um, it's been been wonderful, so thank you. Well, you're welcome. And I guess one ask one last thing is what I would say is that. I'll, there's also been a lot of data to show that the parent's response is very much related to the way that you present something. So if you go to HPV, say, because if you look at that compared to Tdap or the meningococcal vaccine or flu, is that the HPV is a much lower rate. We're at about 60% versus 90 plus percent for the other three vaccines. If you say, we have four vaccines that you need to get today. All of them are equally important. That's a very different message than, yeah, there's these three and, and, and there's HPV and we should think about that one too. Parents are hearing you waffle. They're hearing you think it's not important. Having a consistent, strong, clear message, even if it's something you repeat many times, is the most important thing you can do. Um, if parents are questioning, they have to feel comfortable in your answer and answers of saying yes or no is okay and say does a vaccine cause autism no is a vaccine important yes it's the most important thing to do i have vaccinated my children with every vaccine they have my kids hated me because we lived overseas <laughs> and so they got plenty of vaccines um they're life-saving but us as pediatricians or family practitioners nurse practitioners whatever healthcare providers giving that strong, clear, consistent message that vaccines are important is really a critical way to get parents to accept them. Absolutely, especially with the varied amount of information mm -hmm. in so many different places that you can get it, knowing that they can get that clear message from someone they trust. Exactly. Trust with the lives of their children. So, Well, thank you very much for joining us today. I did want to mention, I believe we will have a link um, to CME questions at the end of the um, podcast. So you can definitely look at that for um, links to those questions. And um, I, once again, I appreciate your time today and thank you very much. Thank you for having me.